Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. Today we're going to be talking about finding an adoption-competent therapist. This is a topic that comes up a lot on the Creating a Family Facebook support group, uh, and it is really harder than you would think sometimes to find, and there are, we have a lot of really good information that will make this easier for you. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. The therapy recognizes the effect that trauma has um, upon the child and um, certainly looks at the implications of trauma at the age of the child, the stage of brain development when the trauma occurred. And um, trauma-informed therapeutic interventions, I think, really focus on where the child was developmentally when the trauma occurred, and then will approach um, providing the kind of trauma-informed interventions um, and not dismiss the power of trauma. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the director of Creating a Family. We are the national adoption and infertility education and support nonprofit. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. This show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Fighting cancer does not have to mean a loss of your fertility. If you or a loved one are facing cancer, you may be eligible for no-cost medication through Faring's HeartBeat program. To learn more, you can go to their website, heartbeatprogram.com, or you can talk with your oncologist or reproductive endocrinologist, and they can give you information as well. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support from our gold sponsors who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to those struggling to create a family. Some of our gold sponsors include Holt International. Founded in 1956, they want every child to have a loving and secure home. They have programs that strengthen and preserve families that are at risk, and they lead the global community in finding families for children who need them. We also have Hopscotch Adoption. They are a Hague-accredited adoption agency placing children from Armenia, Bulgaria, Georgia, Ghana, Guyana, Morocco, Pakistan, Serbia, Ukraine. They also do kinships adoptions. And Vista Del Mar. They are a licensed and accredited nonprofit adoption agency with over 65 years of experience helping to create families. They have three adoption programs, Private Infant, International, and Foster Care. Those are a few of our wonderful gold sponsors. I'll tell you about some more later in the show. But we also have other great sponsors whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. We ask that when choosing an adoption service provider, please consider choosing one from the Creating a Family directories, which you can find on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, number of years in operation, just a lot of things that we think are important when choosing. And by using these directories, you support those who support us, And we thank you. 
Today, we're going to be talking about finding an adoption-competent therapist. Our guest will be Debbie Riley. She is CEO of the Center for Adoption Support and Education, otherwise known as CASE. They are an independent, nonprofit adoption family support center in the Baltimore-Washington area. She has 35 years of professional experience and has developed a nationally acclaimed adoption-competent program. She is also the co-author of the book, Behind the Mask, Understanding Adopted Teens. Welcome, Debbie, to Creating a Family. Thank you, Dawn. I'm glad to be here. Well, this is a show that uh, I think our audience is really going to enjoy We get or, or find helpful. We get so many questions uh, about something to do with adoption, either ad- adoption therapy or finding a therapist, because it is amazingly hard, particularly for someone who, who is uninitiated into, uh, into therapy in general, and it is so hard for them to figure out. And one of the kind of the general questions we get are, how do I even know where to begin? Okay, I go to Google and I Google therapist and and I, I maybe even Google adoption therapist, but there are so many different things, so many different specialties that pop up. How does how is the parent to even know which one to begin with or which one they should consider? Well, that's a, a really great question, and um, I think that at first, at the minimum, uh, a parent should make sure that the um, therapist is a licensed mental health practitioner, whether it be a licensed social worker, marriage and family therapist, psychologist, licensed professional counselor, that they, you know, have that that experience and, and licensure behind them. I think the next piece is that it's really important for, I think, parents to interview prospective therapists um, before they bring their child or themselves to seek some support. And when we're talking about this adoption competency uh, arena, I think it's critical that the parents explore what kind of experience does that particular therapist have in treating adoption-related issues. Uh, Parents should be really specific about the issues that they're concerned about, whether it's around openness in adoption, it could be around some developmental issues that children might face in, in processing their adoption experience, It could be uh, issues that are related to being in a transracial adoptive family. Um, I think that focus is really critical. Um, I would... Yeah, I think that's... I do... I think that's... uh, I I will tell you, though, that parents are intimidated by the idea of interviewing it. We will come back to this because we're going to actually... I'm going to ask you to help us figure out some questions, some specific questions to ask. But parents are intimidated, uh, partly because at some at the point that they're seeking therapists, sometimes they're feeling shaky and and vulnerable themselves. Um, but and I think they're afraid of being judged. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that's probably maybe the main thing. But I agree with you wholeheartedly. So okay, so they look for a, a licensed mental health practitioner of of some sort. Then they interview and they specifically get uh, questions asked about their adoption experience. Uh, is it important that they have experience working with children the age of your child? Absolutely. So you you want to underscore the prevalence of their experience in wor- working with children, teens, and I want to um, add on the family. And I, I'm hoping maybe we can talk a little bit about that. But um, my bias here is that this work is really needs to be done within a family perspective and a family framework, and that the family should be included in the therapy. 
I'm so glad you brought that. That's actually a question I, I have. That is a, a specific question that we receive for this show, and, and it's one that I've heard before, and that is that the child's therapist that they were uh, bringing the child to uh, did not want the parents to be attending the sessions and was uh, reticent to even share with the parents information about what was happening during the therapy session. And the parents are wondering if this is effective because they feel at a loss for how to to help the child. So what are your thoughts on that about parents, uh, therapists who specifically think that parents, this is the not that, that therapy should not involve the family or not involve the parents? Well, adoption is about family, and I think that adoption-competent therapists, if they are adoption-competent, will know that adoptive parents will be empowered um, by including them in the therapeutic process and that I think it's important that we don't minimize the, uh, you know, sort of the expertise that the parent has about the needs of their child. Um, also, many times these issues are related that to the children's early life experiences before they even join their adoptive family, and it's so important that the adoptive family is brought along in the treatment and has the psychoeducation and the support uh, that they need to be successful in parenting children, particularly children from compromised beginnings. That's not to say that some of the sessions would not um, be conducted with maybe the child or adolescent individually, but there's a weaving in of the the family and um, the uh, in- integration of them into the entire process. And how do we help, you know, children and families heal together? Yeah, I think that makes such good sense. So, why is competency in adoption issues important? It's important. Because I believe, and I think the field is also embracing this now, that um, there is an extra body of knowledge that one needs to have in order to be successful in supporting the diverse um, and I think very challenging issues that foster and adoptive uh, children and their families will face. And what we know from research now and and, and and practice is that most therapists who are in training, who are in graduate school, receive just, you know, less than, you know, maybe an hour or, or more in, in their training on the particular issues that are pertinent to uh, the work with this population. And so what we've come to, uh, I think, um, embrace is that there needs to be an extra layer of training that one would hopefully reach out for in order for them to be successful in supporting the needs of our families. And so we have now been leading, I think, the way nationally um, in this endeavor to build what we call an adoption-competent workforce by giving an extra layer of knowledge to therapists who are going to be committed to working with um, our children and families. Well, what about the case the case program? So how many hours uh, does it provide additional training? And, and is this inside the, the uh, component of a, of a university, or is this after the therapist has already received their master's or their doctorate? 
So the training is post-master's. Um, it is called our Training for Adoption Competency TAC. It is a 72-hour manualized curriculum where it's an instruction classroom delivery um, where we have convened a national advisory board many years ago um, to develop what the core competency should be and pulled some of the best experts in the field to think about if one was to be you know, deemed adoption competent, what would this knowledge base look like? Um, and we developed 18 competencies and then wrote a curriculum to address those competencies. And now the TAC program is in 15 states, and you asked in what, in what settings, and they're very diverse settings. Some we have university partners. Some are child welfare agencies, and some are public-private partnerships and private um, adoption-related organizations. We've trained about 600 therapists thus far that have gone through this you know, rigorous um, protocol uh, in wanting to infuse this knowledge into their practice. You talked about core competencies, and you said there were 18. I'm not going to ask you to, to rattle off 18 of them, um, although that would be interesting to see if you could. You probably could rattle them all off. But um, what are some of – just give us a, a flavor of, of what you mean when you're talking about an adoption competency or an adoption issue that you feel like – therapists need to be knowledgeable about in order to be competent to train adoptive families and adoptive children? Sure. sure. Well, at, at basic level, and again, many of the therapists that we're reaching out to have not interfaced with the with the world of adoption. So we want them to have a history of the adoption, the adoption process, understanding legal issues and how they they impact families and children. And then the whole preparation and planning for and preparing for adoption, the different types of adoptive families, what are the key clinical issues from a developmental perspective that children uh, are experiencing with a focus on loss and grief, separation, and certainly identity formation, the implications of genetics and past early experiences, uh, a large focus on trauma and brain neurobiology, as well as attachment um, issues. And then we want to weave in um, a very in-depth discussion of how adoptive families are formed, the impact of race and ethnicity and culture uh, for those children that have been placed transculturally and, and, and transracially, looking at the needs and relationships with birth parents and the whole arena of openness and adoption, and then really um, educating therapists in the community as to what might be promising practices or some evidence-based practices that are more effective with um, the you know, mental health needs of the population that we're asking them to support. And then finally, uh, a very strong focus, and sometimes this is hard for private practitioners, is the ability to work with cross-systems and doing community work. Because a lot of the children that we're supporting have very uh, multiple needs that require, uh, I think, interventions and support from many disciplines. So um, how do you integrate an adoption-competent sort of community-based support system for the children and families? And then most importantly is looking at all the ethical issues that are involved. So I think I might have gotten all of those 18 rattled off to you. <laughs> you might have, actually. Um, I'm curious, do you touch on the impact of grief associated with infertility and how that might impact parenting? Yes, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's an area that sometimes therapists who are not adoption competent 
um, are very uncomfortable with in, in approaching, particularly when a family is bringing a child, let's say, for some issues around depression or some behavioral issues that um, might not see a parallel if we have a couple or individuals who, uh, who their own grief and loss around surrounding their infertility was not dealt with, how it then interfaces with their children's loss issues and how it can really complicate um, the picture if left unaddressed. And I think it often isn't uh, addressed. And oftentimes uh, families are thinking adoption is the cure for it and move quickly into adoption because they're they're ready. I mean, they've waited this long, but without having first dealt with, considered, resolved, if there is such a thing as completely resolving, probably not, yes. but cer- certainly work on their grief so oftentimes, as you point out, they are, they are coming to the table with their own grief. Yeah. Yeah, I had a, a family that I worked with for a very long time, and the daughter now was a, a young adult and was about to have a child, and um, the mother came back in for some support, and this is after many, many years. I mean, these children were adopted, you know, in around the age of three, and said that she couldn't get herself to walk through the um, children's department at the um, a store to buy a baby gift. It just brought up all her loss issues. And her husband was so surprised to hear after 20-some years that she was still struggling with this loss. Um, so I think your point is well taken. Yeah, and those of us who have dealt with the world of infertility wouldn't be surprised at all. Yeah. Uh-huh. You are listening to Creating a Family. Today we're talking about how to find an adoption-competent therapist. Creating a Family has the largest adoption and infertility communities on the social networks, and we would love to have you join us. In fact, Clout now ranks us as the number two online influencer worldwide in these areas. There are three ways to connect with us on Facebook. You can, of course, like our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash creatingafamily, or you can join our very active and very large Facebook support group. It is a closed group, so it is private, and you can find that at facebook.com slash groups slash creatingafamily, or the easiest way is to simply type the words creating a family into the Facebook search box, and you can like the page and join the group. You do have to request to join because it is a, a closed group. We also hang out on Pinterest and Twitter, and we go by at creating a family over there. So please join us. It would be even better. Our groups would be even better if you were a part of them. Debbie, we got today. We're talking about adoption competent therapists. How to find one? Um, we got. Uh, I think it's one question asking about EMDR therapy, and that comes up not infrequently uh, on our group. Can you tell us what EMDR therapy is, and and in your opinion, can it be an effective treatment for some of the issues uh, that might surround uh, adoption? Sure. It stands for just for par- other parents listening. Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. That's how we get the acronym EMDR. And it's an integrative psychotherapy approach that's been extensively researched, which is a good thing, and proven effective for the treatment of trauma. Um, And it has a standardized protocol and it incorporates elements from different treatment modalities, but um, I would say to date it's it's really helped many individuals of all ages, which makes this uh, uh, you know a intervention that um, is is applicable because it can cross different 
age groups and is appropriate for children. Um, again, what one I think needs to be cautious if parents are listening is there are many other interventions. EMDR tends to be one. Um, but you have to be very clear and you, you need to have a good assessment from the front end from a, a therapist, again, who hopefully is adoption competent, as to what is it that we're treating here? What are we trying to address? And then to look at those um, strategies or those treatment um, protocols that are most effective. So EMDR um, is appropriate for adults and children who've experienced a traumatic event in their lives. Um, and, and, and trauma primarily, because we also uh, have heard it talked about with attachment. But when I, and, I, and I would imagine it that uh, a failure to attach can can often cause trauma as well. But so it is one treatment modality that can work. But you're not saying it is the best nor the only one. You're just saying that it is one. Correct. Gotcha. Correct. It is one, and and often is utilized in conjunction with. Um, general psychotherapy. So so you know, we might be working with a family and also utilize a therapist trained in EMDR while still doing other work with the family and the child in collaboration. So what if you're you're not sure that your child's issues are are just run of the mill childhood type problems or if they are adoption related and a concern that parents often have is that if they specifically seek out a therapist that is uh, adoption competent they are predisposing that that, that the, the therapist to assume that the problem is going to be adoption related and you know sometimes a cigar is just a cigar type of thing uh what would you say to parents who are worried about that i think it's a a valid concern, and if I had the answer of, of you know, here are three ways to differentiate between sort of these normal developmental issues and the complexities of adoption, and the, then I, you know, I would be, you know, sitting on an island somewhere. I think it's it's, <laughs> it's hard to tease through. Um, and there was a time in, in my clinical career. I mean, I've been doing, as you said, this work for over 35 years now. But when I didn't have this extra lens, um, I probably would not have seen the adoption-related issues and how, how they may have an interplay or be driving the concerns, uh, the symptoms that are being presented. So I think having a therapist that has this knowledge base can more effectively let the parent know what is normal and what might be attributed to uh, adoption. And I don't think um, that we, as adoption-competent therapists, always defer to it being adoption-related. I can, I can think of so many situations, and I'm still conducting, you know, uh, doing therapy, where I say to parents, you know what, it has nothing to do with adoption, and what you're seeing is, you know, maybe normal adolescent behavior, and all adolescents have control power struggles, and relax about it and not to worry about it. But on the other side of the coin, um, there is a prevalence where we do see um, the child's adoption experience, whether because of what happened prior to them coming into a family or just how they're processing the emotional significance of adoption, that does play into the symptoms that we're seeing. And then we can address them. 
you know, we hear a lot nowadays about trauma-informed therapy. It's almost become a buzzword. Uh, mm-hmm. What exactly is trauma-informed therapy? Well, the therapy recognizes the effect that trauma has um, upon the child and um, certainly looks at the implications of trauma at the age of the child, the stage of brain development when the trauma occurred, and um, trauma-informed therapeutic interventions, I think, really focus on where the child was developmentally when the trauma occurred, and then will approach um, providing the kind of trauma-informed interventions um, and not dismiss the power of trauma that it's had on the child from a neurological developmental perspective and general developmental perspective. So we and have does been. Does it matter the buzzword. age of the child uh, that the trauma occurred? Absolutely. I mean, there's certainly uh, higher risk factors when the trauma was uh, occurred when the child was much younger, um, and um, also we want to look at the intensity and the frequency of of the exposure to the trauma um, is really important. So I think we've made tremendous strides um, in really understanding uh, the impact that trauma has had and really trying to infuse this knowledge base in many domains that children, all children, whether adopted or not adopted, who've been exposed to trauma, um, can have the right kinds of supports where we're really infusing this knowledge in schools, with pediatricians, mm-hmm. um, you know, as well as mental health providers. I mean, really providing a consistent understanding and also helping parents understand that there really is a, a, a need for a very different type of parenting approach when when embracing children who have come from pretty traumatic beginnings. I think we are making progress there. I really do. That has been something that that certainly we have uh, seen in the evolution, people's openness to considering that, families as well as therapists, as well as agencies, um, just a much greater openness to considering the that, that there's a different type of parenting that needs to go on. Yeah, which is... So, you know, I think sometimes we don't recognize progress when we see it because we're in the midst of Mm -hmm. it. But I do think that's an area where I certainly have seen a change in attitude from, you know, just treat them as your own, love them, leave them, and raise them to to a more informed approach that there may be a different type of parenting. Yeah. Right, and I think that gets... Yeah, I think that gets back to your earlier question about, and I know we'll get back there, about, you know, how, how do you find someone to meet your needs? And... Um, certainly the parent would want to add a question around the therapist's experience in working with um, traumatic uh, situations with children and, you know, what types of interventions do they use and what is their philosophy in treating trauma um, is really, really important. Well, actually, let's let's move to that because I do want to talk about how a parent it feels their child is struggling, the family is struggling in some level, and they are seeking out a therapist. Their child is adopted. They would like to find an adoption-competent therapist. So the question that begs the question of how. Um, I'm going to walk through one way, and then I'm going to sure. open it up to talk to you about other ways. One way okay. is to go to the CASE website, which is adoptionsupport.org, 
and I'll give that again at the um, at the bottom. Center for Adoption Support and Education is the name. The website is uh, adoptionsupport.org. And on there, it's a new website, by the way, everyone. It's beautiful. So uh, make sure you check it out, even if you aren't looking. Uh, and then go to their Adoption Competency Initiative, hover over it, and then there is a directory of adoption-competent professionals. It is possible we're going to look into if we can embed that directory somewhere on our site, so that's another way, but that's not happening yet. So uh, that's, uh, stay tuned. That, that may be another possibility. And then when you go to you click on the directory, you can find, you put it in your state, and you can find those that have been trained. Now, those are the ones that have gone through, I think, Debbie, aren't those the ones that have gone through your TACT program, which is the 72 hours of additional postgraduate study. Is that correct? Correct, yes. yes. Okay, so that, yeah. that's one way. All right, let's assume that they go there and they type in their city, and there isn't a uh, someone who's gone through the, the TACT program. Uh, so what are some other options at that point? Uh, that they can consider for finding somebody in their area that has right. uh, has has been effective or at least other families. So I would first start with maybe some of your local adoptive parent support groups. I think adoptive parents are probably the best resource that you know ones that have found effective therapists. So I would start there. I would reach out to some of the public and private adoption agencies. Um, many of the agencies today, while they can't provide the intensive post-adopt support services themselves, have formed some alliances with partners within their community and could rec recommend. You could also contact your local mental health associations uh, to see if there are therapists that they could recommend. Um, there are also some national organizations, so you could look at NACAC's website, National Council on Adoptable Children, or National Council for Family, uh, NCFA, um, also may be a resource to you all. I would, if you still have connections with the social workers that helped you with your own adoption, you could reach back out to them. Um, there, in some states, through the State Department of um, uh, social services, they do have family preservation services for adoptive families and a resource list. And then there are, you could also Google in your prospective states that there's some other adoption competency training programs. Um, there are a few that still exist in the country that might be uh, prevalent in your, in your state. And one of the things I'm excited about um, it's not happening yet, but CASE was awarded a very large federal grant by the Children's Bureau, and we're now working on two web-based products um, that social workers, child welfare workers, and mental health practitioners in the next couple of years will be able to get online and get some of this training that way. It's not available yet. So I think there's certainly opportunities right now that you can reach out to and in the future, I think there will be even more. Um, so I hope that helps. It absolutely does. And we have seen people, uh, even on national online support groups, reach out and say, has anybody, uh, especially this is effective in larger metropolitan areas. I'm in Chicago. I am looking for an adoption-competent therapist, and we've seen people uh, find help that way. I am not sure if you live in Poto Collar and you are saying I'm uh, I'm looking for someone uh, that you would have much luck that way, but but certainly yeah, and and if 
if you are not able to find someone located nearby and you feel and you are going to be using someone who is not adoption competent is there anything parents should know going in um is there anything uh, that you could suggest uh, that, that the parents can give to or, or say to the adoption therapist I'm sorry to the therapist uh are uh, that might uh, help them sensitize them to some of the adoption issues Sure. So I think that's a reality, particularly for families that, you know, may live in sort of remote places where the resources are not the way I just described. I think that it's always helpful, and hopefully the therapist will be open to providing them with articles or books. Uh, I know that the book that you studied that I wrote, Beneath the Mask, Understanding Adopted Teens, a lot of parents have called me from national sites and said, I've, I've given this to my therapist. We live in a a, you know, a rural area, and it's been really helpful. The other thing sometimes, and we do this here, is that we've provided consultation to therapists from afar who can access training, who may want some help from those of us that have expertise. And um, we've reached out that way. Sometimes the parents have fiscally supported that, or the therapists themselves have gotten that kind of long-distance support. So, I think there are a lot of ways that we can infuse this knowledge. I think the key here, though, as you said earlier, is, and I know it's scary sometimes, is I really want parents to understand they are a consumer and an important consumer, and you should not feel embarrassed to ask the questions that we've been posing, and we'll we'll talk about that a little bit more, to find the right fit for your family. We will come right back to that. Let me take a break and remind people that you are listening to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and infertility, and today we are talking about how to find an adoption-competent therapist. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our weekly e-newsletters. We have two of them, one for adoption and one for infertility. You can sign up for either or both. Uh, we let you know about the latest developments in adoption and or infertility, as well as upcoming week's blogs and show topics. You can sign up on any page of our website, creatingafamily.org, upper right-hand side. All right, I agree with you that uh, it is something that we really do need to stress that parents are consumers here and that they need to make a wise choice. For whatever reason, I think this is very hard for a lot of people. And uh, so let's let's get down to brass tacks. What are some specific questions that you would recommend that parents ask when they are trying to find a therapist. So they call up the therapist and they say, okay, I've got a couple of questions. Uh, one of the things I would suggest is, is scheduling an appointment to talk with them or scheduling a phone conversation so you don't catch them in the midst of when they've only got about a couple of minutes. Uh, I think that's just polite. Um, all right, so what are the specific questions or some specific questions that you would suggest that parents could ask? So number one, I would want to know, what, and you can write this down if you're listening, what is your experience with adoption and adoption issues? That would be a good entree. I would also want to know the prevalence. Like in your practice, you know, do you frequently work with adoptive families? And also what types of adoption have you supported? Have you worked with children who have been adopted internationally? Have you worked with transracial adoptive families? Um, what's your experience in working with GLBTQ families? Um, uh, what might be your, could you talk a little bit about what you think are some of the psychological components of adoption? Um, uh, maybe also ask some questions about their knowledge about the impact of trauma 
um, and what experience they have in working with young children and um, adolescents in resolving trauma. The other point here also is to get a, a sense of what is the population that they're most comfortable with. There are a lot of therapists that only like to work with very young children. There are some therapists that hopefully still like to work with adolescents. Um, what extra training did you have that would be adoption-related? Um, and where did you receive this training? Um, how do you work with the family? Do you give parents regular updates on your child's on the progress? Um, maybe are there any specific approaches that you have expertise in in using? So maybe this therapist has gotten some extra training in, let, let's say, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy or EMDR or Santray therapy. Um, and any other adoption-related organizations that they might be affiliated with. Um, do you have experience in working with post-institutionalized children? Have you worked with children that have been in orphanages before? Um, what do you know about children coming from foster care? You know, so what I'm providing here is that you, you also want to get a sense of the population's that they've had experience in working with. I mean, if they've only worked with children placed at birth, then, you know, I might I might want to find a therapist that has had a lot more experience if my child came from foster care, was placed, let's say, at the age of eight, that really understands about, you know, unresolved grief and loss, attachment challenges, uh, what it's like to be in foster care, how do you talk with children who've been in care before, Um if you are so concerned that, that your child has uh, has been sexually abused, you want to specifically yeah. ask about that. If you are facing issues that are related to or you believe may be related to openness or lack of openness in your adoption, that's another specific question that you could ask. Right. Have they been, you know, have they worked with families where uh, birth family members have been involved in the, in the treatment? Um, do they run groups for kids who are adopted? Do they have parent groups? Um, and then I would want to get into some general questions that I think, you know, whether, it, you know, even if you're just looking for a therapist in general, I mean, you you certainly want to know, are they working in isolation? Do they have other therapists in practice with them? Who covers for them when they're away? Um, that's really important because a lot of the kids that we work with have a high sensitivity to loss and separation. And so, um, you know, who's going to be there for backup? Is there going to be continuity? Um, That's a great question. That's a practical one. <laughs> yeah. You know, how flexible are they? You know, if you're working with children, do you have office hours after school and in the evenings? Um, that's also really important. Also for parents who are working, so they're not just – daytime hours. And again, earlier I said about the importance of being able to collaborate with others in the community. So, you know, a lot of the kids that we see here at Case have significant learning challenges. Um, we, you know, interface with schools in a very um, deep way. And I think that that's important is how open is the therapist in collaborating? Will they attend outside meetings? Will they go to school meetings? Um, do they have relationships with other, particularly psychiatrists in the community that are 
also sort of adoption competent because, you know, we have to be cautious but yet aware that uh, children and adolescents often are prescribed and may need a regime of psychotropic medication. Again, I'm cautious about this. But you want to make sure that they have strong collaborations with other medical professionals to, to help uh, you know, with the, the, the whole treatment picture. I think it's also important that the treatment isn't fragmented, so that's why it's important to see what other uh, supports and are they open to working with other professionals or do they want to do everything themselves. I will, let me interject here that we have uh, resources and have done shows or a show on understanding psychotropic drugs. Um, I really recommend that show. It was great and it has been uh, very useful, I think, for families who may um, be needing to consider that or they have had a child arrive who is uh, from foster care or internationally who's already on these, these type of medications. Okay, so those are some like the general, and then just some real practical things. Cost, um, is it included in your insurance network if uh, if you have insurance that will be covering this? Things like that, obviously, that you would be considering regardless. That's just kind of a practical consideration. Um, you raised a question that I have been wondering. How often in your practice or in cases practice uh, do you see issues of openness be an issue, and how often are birth parents involved in therapy. I find that fascinating, and I wonder, as we are um, approaching now um, our maturity and open adoptions, if you will see more of that. Well, we certainly see openness um, uh, as a variable in the work that we do, and we often have um, families coming at, at different stages in regards to the issue of openness, whether they themselves or their children or young adults are, you know, thinking about opening an adoption or the adoption was open and now, um, which is very typical as the uh, adoptee uh, evolves and, and matures, the um, the aspect of openness may, may change or who's, who's managing the openness um, from when they're younger, the parents all manage it. But as as we move into, you know, adolescence, the teens tend to want to have more autonomy with that relationship. Sometimes we see in adolescence where the adoption was open, where all of a sudden there's pulling back. Um, they may want to um, decrease the amount of contact with the birth parent or birth parents or birth family members. Um, so it ebbs and flows, but I think as we've made tremendous I think strides in not fearing openness in adoption um, and seeing the benefits for all that families are navigating um, the waters and often need need support. Also, with the um, you know our, our world is information. You know we have children who are now unfortunately, and I put this as a pause, using the internet to find information um, without the support of their family. And sometimes we have birth family members finding adoptees. Um, and all of that needs to be, I think, uh, provided with some adult oversight when we're talking about children. So there are a lot of issues that are related to openness that I think uh, are needing therapeutic support. And again, why, when you think about it, this this kind of knowledge is not given in our graduate, you know, training. 
um, there just isn't time for it. And, you know, so that's why this adoption competency training is so important that a therapist then then help a family work through these issues and know what the, pr- the issues of openness are. One of the issues you said when you were talking about adoption competency was understanding the legal issues surrounding adoption. Why is that important for a therapist to understand the the legal issues associated with adoption? Well, I think for, they have to know at least the constructs of how you know what, how adoption occurs and what what is the legal process that that ensues, whether it's international, private or child welfare placement. Um, There are still laws surrounding search and, you know, uh, and openness in records that are different in every state. And I think as a therapist, you need to be aware of what those legal ramifications are, particularly if a family's coming in or an adult adoptee's coming in for support and uh, is looking to have their records opened or would like to conduct a search. Um, you know, the, the policy infects in, in and impacts practice. And so we have to understand what those boundaries are, um, why they're there, and um, the implications that they have. I mean, a, an adult adoptee could be coming in with very profound symptoms of depression that certainly could be uh, related to the fact that um, they may not have any information. They may want information. Um, they may be struggling with medical issues that cannot be addressed fully because they don't have information. And the therapist not understanding what the laws are could be recommending things that couldn't happen or not understanding may not be able to support his or her client in a way that they could be more effective if they understood what the laws were. And it's nothing more frustrating than to feel like you're having to educate the person who is supposed to be helping you. Um, it's uh, if, if you happen to know more of the information, not all parents or not all adoptees do, but some do. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's certainly helpful if the person that you're talking with knows at least as much as, as you about some of the, the, the practical issues associated with it. Right. Yeah, that makes good and sense. And for some younger children, I mean, we've had young children come in who who had terrible anxiety terrible fears, weren't sleeping at night because they really believed that they were stolen. You know, you they see things on TV, they're, they're processing things with very, you know, uh, tiny brains, that, and this information is really hard to, to understand. And so it, it often requires someone with knowledge helping little children understand, you know, that, that you were not stolen, that there was a judge and there was an attorney and there were as best as you can communicate in terms developmentally for children to help ally those fears. This is adoption can be really scary for kids and trying to understand how how are you taken away or given away mm-hmm. um, from parents that are supposed to take care of you and protect you. How does that happen? And can it happen again? It can so, it happen again exactly if it happened that's once. That's right. You know, an interesting thing that uh, families are now uh, reporting, and we hear about this periodically in our uh, support groups, is uh, children who have been adopted internationally. There is so much online now. Uh, The one that comes to mind is children adopted from Guatemala. And uh, there is so much online now about corruption in that process. And 
what does this these children are now parents are foolish to think if they, that they think their children are not going to be online looking for information some will and some won't but they certainly are competent enough to figure out how to do it and how does that impact a 18 who worries about this and who has researched and read about uh, online, doesn't take a lot of research, um, read online about the corruptions associated with, in this particular case, international adoption. And that's a, a, um, that's a scary thing as well. So, again, being competent enough to be able to bring up these issues therapeutically, to, you know, talk with children and families about it and, and, and help to address those fears it requires a, a pretty deep body of knowledge. I mean, it really does. Um, as I said, you know, I've been practicing for many, many years, and when I think back of what I didn't know and what I know now, um, it's 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 a tremendous amount of information um, to integrate into practice. Yeah, absolutely. So how long does it take, uh, in general, to start seeing improvement? So a family has uh, has started seeking therapy for themselves and for their child. How long should they wait uh, before they, or how long should they have to wait before they expect to see some improvement to know whether or not this approach, whatever the approach is, is working? So I think it varies. And, and you know, I can give you one example where a family brought a uh, nine-year-old in to see me, and um, there were behavioral issues where the parents would ask the child to pick up, you know, clean up after himself or, you know, turn the TV off. And whenever this occurred, the young person would say, you're not my real parent, you can't tell me what to do. So, I mean, obviously adoption had something to do with the behaviors that were present. And in a very short period of time, and I, I can't get into all the details, what he wanted most was a better understanding of who his birth family was, why he was adopted. And once he had all that information, the behaviors ceased. And that was like eight weeks of therapy. And I never saw them again. Where other families may um, require, you know, it could be two years that we're working with a young person. It could be uh, six months and we're seeing some of the symptoms uh, subside. And then again, maybe the family will come back a year later around something else. I mean, again, I, I, what I want to stress is a lot of this is processed developmentally, um, so we need to understand that. And I would say for more serious issues, um, particularly for children that are coming in from very compromised beginnings, our average time with kids and families here is about 18 months with with kids on that spectrum of of histories of trauma, abuse, deprivation, separation. Um, I just, I think we need to be clear about, you know, what it is that the therapist is treating. Um, what are the primary concerns that the parent is presenting uh, that they're concerned about? Uh, obviously, if it's an adolescent, they can articulate as well as children sometimes about what hurts and what they'd like to see get better. Mm-hmm. I think a couple months is a good benchmark. Something should be happening. And and how young is too young? Um, we obviously adolescents can, if they choose to, participate fully in in therapy. But is there an age where you would say this is really this child is too young? Well, yeah. I mean, I, we you know we would like 
well, it depends what kind of therapy. I mean, if you're doing some play-based therapy, but certainly children that um, are verbal. Um, but you can always work with the parent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, in helping them deal with some of the, it could be sleep issues with you know young, very young children. It could be eating issues. It could be temper tantrums. I mean, so um, if the child's not available for therapy per se, then the parents are the ones that you're guiding in helping to alleviate some of the symptoms. And educate, because I would think that's all, you know, educate the parent. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's maybe the most effective thing, especially with young children, that you're able to do. So... Unfortunately, sometimes parents are concerned that that either they've had their child in uh, outpatient therapy and they feel like it is not working or parents have reached the end of their rope for whatever reason. So what are the options for families or how do they know? I guess that's the first question. If something like uh, residential treatment or hospitalization uh, is something that they should be considering for their child. I think residential, well, I'll start with hospitalization. I mean, you know, in t- in, in today's world, um, we utilize hospitalization when we're looking at children that are at risk to themselves or to others. Um, it really is about safety and that they're not responding to uh, a regime of outpatient treatment. Um, these are children that are engaging in self-harming behaviors or uh, have uh, suicidal ideation, um, where their depression, their symptoms are so severe that they're not being alleviated by your traditional outpatient um, treatment interventions. And I would hope that that decision would be made in conjunction with a therapist and a psychiatrist uh, to de- determine that level of um, of an intervention because it's a very serious intervention to hospitalize a child or an adolescent, sometimes highly necessary, um, but one that should be done very carefully, cautiously, but yet always have the safety of the child is at the forefront. Um, Residential treatment is a complex issue, I think, Um, a complex... I agree with that one. (laughs) It's hard. Yeah, um, it's very hard. It often comes after a hospitalization, where um, maybe after hospitalization, the child or the adolescent stable comes back into the community. Again, uh, behaviors persist and um, we're back where we started from, where then a recommendation might be that a much more intensive treatment intervention protocol length of stay um, is warranted. I think you have to be really, really careful when you think about a residential treatment placement um, the type of placement, the expertise of that facility. And and my concern is that while I think we're making great strides in community-based mental health around adoption competency, we have nowhere yet begun to address that workforce in residential treatment programs. That's a whole area that I think needs a lot more training. Um, And unfortunately, there's a high representation of adopted children in residential treatment programs and in some of these kind of outward bound um, mm-hmm. um, you know what do we call them um 
I don't. Uh, the, the, going back to nature, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, perceived hardship, you know, building character, right. building that type of thing. Right. You know, that's an interesting point you raise, and, and you're right. Uh, adopted people, adopted children, adopted adolescents, are disproportionately represented in residential treatment. This is not really probably within the. I'm just curious to pick your brain as to the why. It's something I've thought about a lot. Um, as to the why that is the case, do you have any thoughts on that? It's fair to say no. That yeah, I, I, no, I do. I do have thoughts about it, and I think um, I think we we're better at it, but we haven't been historically in in providing a responsive system of care, the right kinds of care, early on to children and adolescents when they're really struggling. I think. Again, your point about parents maybe not knowing where to go, feeling guilty that they should know what to do, not reaching out for help soon enough, that the problems become so severe that the family becomes burnt out. They want to give up. They don't know what to do. Um, Sometimes our systems become uh, taxed and they don't know what to do. And so we move into these higher levels of congregate care that really I don't feel are as effective as if we could put in very sound, responsive post-adopt services much earlier um, in our communities. And we haven't made great strides in that area. I mean, you know, we've been doing this work now for almost 20 years, and um, I can tell you across the country there's disparity in comprehensive post-adopt effective support networks for families. Amen. We see it. We've done some surveys. This is a real goal for creating a family this year, and we've been doing surveys of our uh, online audience. I couldn't agree with you more. There is there is a disparity, uh, but, but quite frankly, almost universally. Well, that's, I shouldn't say that because th- there are some, uh, some uh, families who are reporting really strong support, but they are the exception. Most people... It's almost poignant when you listen to the quotes. Uh, we did a show on post-adoption support in um, November, and um, the, and we did a survey beforehand, and the quotes were heartbreaking. Families very much feel that once the, adopt, once the ink is dry, they are on their own, and they believe, many of them, that, that, is the, that that's what their agency is telling them. Um, and oftentimes they're facing issues that they just do not feel competent in dealing with on their own. Well, and, you know, it also, I think, speaks to, and it's sad to me when families come here and they carry, a, you know, a sort of a, a bag full of evaluations where they did seek help. And, again, these were practitioners that that never addressed the adoption-related issues. Adoption wasn't even, it wasn't even on the radar. Um, and I think then that's why we see the problems not... Um, subsiding, they get worse, and that's then when we see this overrepresentation, not only in residential treatment, but you know, in other levels of uh, therapeutic, um, you know, sort of community, so to speak. So I think it's two pronged. One, we need to put funding behind what works and and have you know these array of post adopt services and we know what families need now there's no more surveys that we need to know to do we know what they need and then we need to build the workforce that has the knowledge to meet the needs of the families it's it's rather simple actually i mean it's not that complicated we just have to do it 
<laughs> well, therein lies the rub, though, as, as is often the case. <laughs> as is often the case, unfortunately. Let me take I guess a I moment. I feel like we're. Yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I just. Well, I mean, I, I. I feel like we're making strides, and I'm. I'm. I'm proud of the leadership that you know Case has been able to have in this area, and, and this you know as far as the adoption competency and what we see in our own practice is that children and families are, are thriving. Um, and that's that speaks to why we have to have universality of these services and supports, as you're saying, and as yeah. you've been such a great advocate of. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for being with us today on Creating a Family and talking about such an important topic of finding an adoption-competent therapist. Let me take a moment to uh, remind you that this show is brought to you by the generous support of our gold sponsors. I listed a few at the beginning. Here are a few more. We have Children's Connection. They are an adoption agency with offices throughout Texas providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the United States. And we have the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson. They are a South Carolina firm committed to adoption and assisted reproductive law. If you've enjoyed this show, do us a favor. Give us a rating on iTunes. We are by far the number one rated show in, in these topic areas, and we'd like to, to stay there. And uh, iTunes uses uh, the reviews and uh, your reviews for knowing whether to recommend us. It's super easy to do. If you've got iTunes on your phone or your computer, just type in our names and then rate us. If you don't, go to our website, creatingafamily.org slash radio show, and uh, click on the iTunes uh, icon there, and you can and it will pop up. Thank you, Debbie, so much for being with us today. I know that everyone is going to want to go to your website and look up uh, your resources, but especially look up your directory for finding an adoption-competent therapist. Your website is the CASE website, and CASE stands for Center for Adoption, Support, and Education. The website is adoptionsupport.org. Couldn't be simpler. If you would like to participate in the topic, I am going to the list that uh, Debbie Riley gave as to questions to ask in order to determine whether the therapist you're considering has adoption competency. We will turn that into a blog, and it will be posted next week, so you can continue the discussion uh, and talk about uh, this very important topic there. Thank you so much, and I will see everybody next week. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Old moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations.